It's August 4th, 2019, and this is episode 406 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Hey folks, on today's show we're digging in deeply to hyperinflation, local, regional, and national reserve currencies, the realities of empire, and of course, where Bitcoin fits in all of this. Today's episode is sponsored by Edge.app and BlockchainTraining.org. And if you haven't already, subscribe to the new Let's Talk Bitcoin only podcast feed on iTunes, Android, or seven other popular platforms at the new ltbshow.com. That's www.ltbshow.com. Enjoy the show. Hey folks, I'm Adam B. Levine, and on today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin, I'm here with Andreas M. Antonopoulos. Hello. Stephanie Murphy. Hi. And Jonathan Mohan. Hey, hey. Thanks to all the hosts and to you, the listeners, for sitting in on today's session. One of the early stories that we discussed at great length, and one of the things that I was really, really excited about kind of early on in our journey into cryptocurrency was the sort of long-term play that Bitcoin and related technologies are making as unstoppable competition for global, regional, and national currencies. With that in mind, today I'd like to have an open discussion about reserve currencies and a kind of related topic, hyperinflation. Just to kind of kick things off and set terms, Stephanie, can you give us a good working definition of hyperinflation as you see it? Yeah, sure. Okay, so hyperinflation is what happens when a central bank, a currency issuer, produces more money than there is demand for the money. And now you could say, well, there's always demand for money, right? Everybody wants money, right? But it doesn't exactly work that way because there's this thing called Gresham's Law. And that means that when people believe more in the fidelity of a money, they will want to basically keep the good money and spend the bad money to get rid of it. Bad money becomes like a hot potato. And what does bad money mean? Well, it's something like paper money and good money would be something like precious metals or cryptocurrencies or something like that. So people want to get rid of the bad money. And so they spend it into circulation and it's like they can't get rid of it fast enough. But then basically the value of that bad money goes down and there's an oversupply of it and nobody wants it. And so it just becomes worth less and less and less. So the real issue is that nobody wants the money. And because nobody wants the money, it means that the places that you can spend it and, you know, the value perhaps that you can get from spending it go way, way down. Absolutely. It's also a self-fulfilling prophecy because if people believe that it will lose its value, they dump it, which causes it to lose its value faster, which reinforces the belief that it will lose its value. So they dump more of it, et cetera. So you get this vicious cycle. At the beginning of the answer, Stephanie, you said that this happens when a central bank overproduces money. Why would a central bank do that? Well, they're trying to pay down debts with the money that they're printing, (laughs) and they can spend it before the impact of it losing its value actually hits the broader economy, because the government has access to that money first. And so they can create more money, and then they can pay it back, and the whole economy hasn't had a chance to catch up and to feel the impact of that money losing its value yet, so they have sort of an advantage with that. So it's not necessarily that central banks want to create money in an irresponsible way. It's more that 
the government needs money to spend. And if it can't get it through other means, then this is a way that they can get that money by essentially having the central bank, either implicitly or explicitly, create new money that then the government uses to pay its own bills, which then, as you said, enters it into the economy where the effects of that new money supply start to take impact. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, this is hyperinflation we're talking about now, but inflation happens all the time with any central bank currency. They're pretty much trying to keep a stable rate of inflation. And in fact, there's monetary policy that's set by the Federal Reserve that dictates the level of inflation that they want to have. And, you know, there's the school of thought that some level of inflation is healthy, right? That's Keynesian economics. John Maynard Keynes was saying you have to prime the pump of the economy by the government printing money and creating inflation. And who was it that was saying, like, we should just drop it from helicopters? That's Bernanke. (laughs) Okay, so, yeah, there's some politicians who believe that inflation helps the economy because the newly printed money will sort of like trickle down to people and it'll encourage spending, essentially, and that will kick off a ball rolling that will stimulate the economy as a whole. But of course, that can backfire, too, because then if the central bank is printing too much money or creating too much money through fractional reserve lending, which is another thing that may factor in here, you can get hyperinflation. It's also interesting to note that not all historical instances of hyperinflation were centrally controlled. So like a very prominent example of this is with the Spanish Empire when they expanded to the Americas and they took so much gold from the Incans and the South Americans and brought it back to Spain that it hyperinflated their gold-backed currency, just how much raw gold they had brought back and created a sort of a hyperinflation spiral on gold, which is yet another way in which Bitcoin is extremely interesting and distinct from even a commodity because it has a fixed supply curve. Unlike even just gold, you can't come up with a bunch of it out of nowhere And it is interesting to note that even non-centrally controlled commodity-based currencies have gone through periods of hyperinflation, even without an intended actor doing it. I was thinking that, you know, it doesn't have to be a central bank that causes hyperinflation. It usually is because of their policies. But what would happen, like, if we make an analogy to the Spanish explorers finding a bunch of gold and then inflating their gold-backed currency? Could that happen if there was Bitcoin or some other coin that was locked up or something, and then the key was suddenly found, and then there was a big supply. It's not new coins being created. It's just sort of like being liberated from something that was previously blocked. In the Spanish gold case, they had the coins, which were the sovereign currency, but that were made of gold. And then when they had the influx of new gold that wasn't produced by traditional supply chains, they then converted it into the Spanish minted coin which then rapidly increased the amount of the Spanish minted gold coins in supply. So it was the sort of supply influx that created the hyperinflation of their currency. You know, it's not like gold came out of nowhere. It was just that the currency increased rapidly. In that case, it seems like it's almost more like a revaluation to take into account the new supply that previously the market didn't know about, right? Yeah. But isn't that sort of the definition of hyperinflation? (laughs) I suppose that is. It's a revaluation based on new fundamentals that are different from the old fundamentals and which might, in fact, you know, evoke a dramatically different behavior, right? In one case, you want to save them because you think that they're going to be worth more money. In another case, you want to get rid of them because you think they're going to be worth less money as time goes on. Well, that may be technically true, but I always think of the connotation of a word like hyperinflation or inflation as it's a central bank doing it. 
Sure. I think in the modern era, certainly we haven't seen any examples that immediately come to my mind of that. And whether it's a central bank, I think broadly, I would summarize it to the cause is government action, right? And whether it's a central bank enacting it or not, it's government that's actually causing it. That's only because there's no constraints imposed by physical commodities anymore on money. And therefore, only through government's action can you have that kind of supply shock. Right. So in the scenario that Jonathan was talking about, even though there was this sort of hyperinflationary event, because the currency itself was backed by a physical commodity, while the government could choose not to perhaps convert all of that commodity into its currency, it couldn't create more of its currency than there was of that commodity to turn into it, right? That's where you get to the sort of devaluation that you see in hard money schemes sort of devolving. I mean, they did it long enough until an entire continent got the prefix of their culture attached to it. So it takes a while too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So with that kind of understanding in mind, let's talk about reserve currencies and kind of the modern incarnation, which I would consider global reserve currencies. I guess a a point of reference, I don't really know the answer to this. Are there non-global reserve currencies out there? Are there regional reserve currencies where, say, in China, the Chinese currency is used even in, you know, surrounding states and things like that? Yeah, absolutely there are. In some short period of history, ironically, in fact, the Greek drachma became the hard currency of the Balkans for a very short period of time. So it doesn't have to be hard in absolute terms. A currency can become hard vis-a-vis much softer currencies. That happens all around the world. The Swiss franc has played that role. Various currencies that are more closely tied to gold have played that role in the past, or currencies tied to silver. It's happened in many different regions. The difference is the one global reserve currency we have today the global reserve status of it is itself by fiat, meaning that the dollar is the global reserve currency because of the Bretton Woods Agreement, not because it just emerged as a de facto reserve currency. People like to refer to the US dollar as the global reserve currency, and that's waxing and waning. But you know, I would also like to break out different levels of global reserve One is that once a currency is recognized with a particular status, every other corresponding nation holds a large reserve of it. So while we have the preeminent global reserve currency, once you reach like a G20 or even earlier level, sovereign nations will actually hold a large portion of your currency in their reserves specifically so that they can provide a liquid trade pair against it for their own currency. Especially when you have extensive trade ties with the nation of that currency. So a modern example would be African countries holding big reserves of yuan, the Chinese currency, because of strong trade ties with China. So you kind of have two different types of global reserve currencies. It's the type that you use specifically because you wish to denominate sovereign debt with that currency's future, sort of like T-bills in the US dollar. Because, you know, there's some commodity that everyone needs that you have to purchase it with, which is what used to be the dollar with OPEC. And then the other is a nation who has their own currency and you as a country want to be able to liquidly net out commerce between your two countries, like Andrea said, with, for instance, let's say Kenya and China. So it seems like both regionally and internationally, really what we're talking about here is the cleanest dirty shirt argument, right? Where it's like, it doesn't necessarily matter in absolute terms what the fundamentals of the currency are. What matters is what are the other options that you have available to you? 
and how well do those perform relative to this one? And so the one that people tend to prefer, as we were discussing earlier with the conversation about Gresham's law, is the one that is the least bad of them. The least bad equals the most good in this case, <laughs> right? Yeah, in the heroin den, the weed dealer is king. Well, I'd like to use another analogy, which is Gresham's law means you're trying to get away from the bad money as quickly as possible. In that case, it's more akin to the analogy of you don't have to run faster than the bear. You just have to run faster than one other person. Okay. So a global reserve currency then has the best network effect, has the best liquidity. So really another way to say that would be it has the most utility of the other currencies that are available relative to the challenges that someone's trying to counter with that. Are there any scenarios where a country managing global reserve currency wouldn't want other people to use that currency? A good example of this is North Korea. North Korea has large holdings of $100 US bills, and there are even rumors that they own a literal US $100 bill mint. But I don't believe they internally syndicate or use the US dollar as a currency. So North Korea might not necessarily use it as a currency, but North Korea is also somewhat unique in that there are, at this point in time, a couple of countries that are sort of forbidden to use the US system and where the U.S. actually applies that reserve status as a way to try and leverage countries into doing what it wants. This is something that's been going on for a very long time with North Korea. So then a country can basically say, all right, well, even though from an absolute stance, we want everybody to use our currency as a way to punish a country or as a way to try and get them to change something, we're going to forbid them from using it. That's basically the only argument I can think of for why you wouldn't want you know, a reserve currency to be used as broadly as possible, right? Yeah. One of my most interesting anecdotes about demonetization of a nation's own currency for fear of another country using it is I was reading earlier about Japan. So in World War II, because Hawaii is so away from the mainland, it had its own amount of US dollars that it retained. And this was back in those dollar amounts. I don't know what it was, but it was a half a billion dollars worth of currency. So after Pearl Harbor, we so feared that the Japanese would ever get onto Hawaii and take the half a billion dollars worth of US dollars and then currency manipulate with it and debase against the US that for the entire time of World War II, Hawaii's bills had the word Hawaii on them, printed on the bills, so that if Japan ever conquered Hawaii, they would demonetize every US bill that had the word Hawaii on it. They're called Hawaiian dollar bills. So it's interesting, the historical games as to how to demonetize or prevent certain nations from using a currency is one that's you know been going on for hundreds of years. It's almost as if it would make sense to separate the state from control of money, just like we separate them from control of religion. I think that that's an interesting point, And it's one that kind of leads me into where I want to go next, which is why do we have a reserve currency that runs off of a monetary rail system like SWIFT as we do now? And I think that this starts to get back in and wrap around the conversation to the topic at hand, which is that reserve currencies, while they are really useful, the way that they've been enacted throughout history has been as a function of governments or as a function of payment systems. And all of those governments and payment systems have very specific agendas and people who are their enemies and people who are their friends. And so it makes it so that even though from a utility perspective, you know, if you're running a global reserve currency or even a regional reserve currency, you would want to have that currency be used by as many people as possible. In reality, there are things that could cause you to not want people to use your currency. So as Jonathan said, in the case of war or something like that, that's a valid reason. 
And in the case of what's going on now with a country like North Korea, you can make arguments as to whether that's a valid reason or not. But what's kind of gotten me going down this path over the last couple of years, really, is that increasingly the U.S. has been using that status as the keeper of the global reserve currency and as the kind of biggest part of the global financial system as a way to try and exert its will onto countries that perhaps are not as controversial as North Korea. I would like to take a slight twist on that and say it's it's not so much as reserve currencies are something that governments use to control. Instead of the word government, I would use the word empire because reserve currency is absolutely a tool of imperialism and empire, starting with the Roman Empire and every other country that has ever imposed a reserve currency on the world or be used as a reserve currency has been an empire of sorts. Now we're living in the final stages of the American empire. And as a result, the degree of control that the ailing U.S. empire is trying to impose for its currency is getting more and more ridiculous and dissonant with you know, the image of a benevolent democratic state. I think that's a really interesting point, that the word empire here should be pretty clearly distinguished between government, because while there are many, many governments around the world, there really are just one or perhaps two empires at any given time. And the empire thing, you know, the currency plays a role in that, but the other parts of it are sort of implicit in that, like the militarism and the sort of adventurism that we see. Again, if you look back at historical empires or people who had the reserve currency at the time, that's a commonality there as well. Absolutely. Empire uses currency and currency drives empire and all of the things that come with it, including militarism and eventually including decline and hyperinflation. And no better example than going back to the first, I think, the first recorded historical hyperinflation, which is the decline of the Roman Empire. So the decline of the Roman Empire coincides directly with the first historically recorded hyperinflation incident, where they started diluting the silver content of their coinage until eventually it was junk. Andreas, you were mentioning the Bretton Woods Agreement before, and I'm not sure if everybody knows what exactly that is. Maybe it's worth talking about because potentially this could happen again or apply to cryptocurrencies somehow. So there's two aspects to this. One is the agreement to go on to the gold standard. Everything was denominated in U.S. dollars based on $35 an ounce backed gold, right? So that's the first agreement where the U.S. dollar becomes a proxy for gold, but the price of the U.S. dollar in gold gets pegged or the price of gold in U.S. dollars. So that was the 1944 Bretton Woods Agreement. So that was the agreement right after the war. And it basically established a new monetary system where instead of having all of the currencies have exchange rates to gold, all of the currencies had exchange rates to dollars and the U.S. dollar had a fixed convertibility. Now, the important part here is convertibility, which means that on demand, you could ask for gold in return for your dollars at that fixed rate. That made it by definition, the reserve currency, but it also made it by agreement, the reserve currency, because everything became pegged on that. And this was a good idea early on because the U.S., again, had come out of the war as basically a lender as opposed to a debtor, which it would later become. Yes. And part of this was because Britain had come out of this with a very damaged currency out of World War II. And 
This was, among other things, to provide a more stable basis for global currency. Everybody was in debt except for the U.S. So that was the initial agreement. Now, that agreement was broken in 1971 when Nixon ended the convertibility, the fixed convertibility of U.S. dollar to gold by closing the gold window. And that's basically refusing to honor the convertibility of gold, at which point the price of U.S. dollar to gold skyrocketed which means that the U.S. dollar was devalued against gold. Uh, today, it's well, 1,300 U.S. dollars for an ounce of gold from 35 in 1971. So as you can see, the U.S. dollar got devalued, but all of the other countries maintained their exchange rates against the U.S. dollar and were convertible to U.S. dollars. And part of the reason this was possible was the devil's deal with Saudi Arabia. So at the same time that this was happening, Kissinger made a deal with Saudi Arabia, that in exchange for protection and weapons, Saudi Arabia and all of the allied nations in the Gulf that were controlled by Saudi Arabia would only sell oil for U.S. dollars. So effectively what happened is the U.S. dollar was no longer backed by gold at a fixed rate, but instead was backed by uh, you can only buy oil with U.S. dollars. Therefore, that's the currency you need to keep buying oil. And that gave the U.S. dollar the ability to devalue rapidly and finance enormous debt without effectively dropping its exchange rate because people always need oil. Therefore, they always need U.S. dollars. Therefore, as long as we're willing to bomb and kill and engage in never-ending war to maintain oil dominance, the U.S. dollar gets a free ride in terms of interest rates and inflation at the expense of the rest of the world. So that system pushed forward then for, you know, 40 years, basically. And perhaps in the last, you know, 20 years, we've started to see the the meaningful cracks in it. And again, I think that what that's really shown is that institutional kind of inertia around these things, you know, when everybody uses a thing, when there's network effect around it, there have to be really good reasons to change. And there have to also potentially be alternatives, right? So either have to be forced to change or there have to be such good alternatives that it warrants the problem. And changing is difficult. Now, by sheer coincidence, and please don't read anything into this, um, just a few months after Iraq Saddam Hussein announced that he would sell oil for a currency other than the US dollars, we bombed the f- out of them. Just a few months after Libya announced that it would sell oil for something other than dollars, we bombed the f- out of them. And now Iran is selling oil directly to the Chinese and Russians in a currency other than U.S. dollars. And but of course, you know, we can't extrapolate anything from these wild coincidences in timing. I think one of the big takeaways for me about all of this stuff is that when you're talking about empire, anything goes right because there's nobody who enforces rules on the dominant empire at the time. By kind of definition, they're the ones that do the enforcing and they're the ones that largely set the rules. You know, and I'm obviously a US citizen. I'm talking about my own government in this circumstance as are we all. But I mean, that just kind of seems to be the reality of it. And the monetary system is really no different. The advantage that a reserve currency gives you is significant, but one of the things you can use it for is to, as with Iran, to say, well, you're locked out of the global financial system because we're going to make countries pick whether they're going to do business with Iran or do business with the U.S. plus all of the other people using the U.S. system. At the time that it happened a couple of years ago, you know, and since then, has been really, really, really difficult for that country to deal with. But in the last six months to a year, we've started to see that shift where 
there are enough countries now that the U.S. has said, well, we're not going to let you use our system in this context or entirely, that they've actually created sort of their own alternative system. And it always strikes me as such a funny thing that the country that has the responsibility and power granted to it by nature of having a global reserve currency or a currency that is so well held by the rest of the world would incite the creation of a competing system that if it didn't do anything, if it just let people use the currency the way that people needed to use it, then there would be no competition and there would be no danger to loss because why would anyone change? Well, it comes down to empire overreach and the expectations and demands of maintaining empire overtaking the actual ability and finances of the declining empire itself. The most interesting thing that's happened is that because the current U.S. administration pulled out of the Iran agreement, kind of despite the previous president, the end result has been that the Europeans are sticking with that and not violating it and have set up alternative channels for paying Iran so that they can continue to uphold the agreement and allow Iran to sell its oil. And that fundamentally undermines not only the US dollar's reserve status, but also its ability to maintain empire. Hang on, uh, I'm I'm seeing some incoming news. Um, Oh oh yeah, it's just been discovered that uh, Germany uh, is developing weapons of mass destruction. This just announced. um, And uh, wait, wait, France also um, has been discovered to have weapons of mass destruction um, uh, developed by Sharia law, yes. That's the irony of this thing, which is that you can pretend that you're invading people because of weapons of mass destruction until it's your European allies that are breaking the imposed rules, at which point even that lie doesn't work. So, you know, at this point, the cracks are now bigger than the bits holding the system together. So we've talked about hyperinflation. We've talked about reserve currencies. One thing that I don't actually necessarily know if I have a good answer to is can a reserve currency hyperinflate? Are those two things mutually exclusive or does by the nature of one hyperinflating make it not a reserve currency any longer? A reserve currency can hyperinflate because that's already happened in the past. It happened in Rome, it happened in Spain, and it could happen again. At that point, it becomes very difficult to maintain its status as a reserve currency because Gresham's law kicks in. One way of thinking of reserve currency is to replace the word reserve with the word hodl. So it stops being a good hodl currency if it's hyperinflating, at which point people stop hodling it and they start spending it as fast as they can. If you think of reserve currency as a status that is given by a committee or a global agreement versus something that emerges as a market truth, if ever those two facts diverge where the agreement is still that it's reserve currency, but the market truth is that it's no longer a good hodl currency. If those diverge, then it doesn't matter if you keep calling it a reserve currency, people aren't willing to hodl it. Hey folks, Adam B. Levine here for another sponsored minute with Paul from Edge.app, a non-custodial exchange to buy, sell, and trade cryptocurrency. Hi, Paul. Hey, Adam. Happy to announce today that we are really bringing the power of decentralized exchanges to the masses. 
as many people know, decentralized exchanges really provide the permissionless access to be able to exchange many different cryptocurrencies independent of a centralized third party making that decision for them. Today, we're announcing integration with Total. It's an API that allows Edge to connect to multiple independent decentralized exchanges or DEXs to provide liquidity for the currency pair that a user is wanting to swap. Not only does Edge connect to these decentralized exchanges through Total, but they actually connect to conventional exchange partners such as Changely and ChangeNow and Shapeshift, and it'll actually find the best price for the currency pair a user wants to swap in the amount that they want to swap, really folding these DEXs into the mix seamlessly with other centralized exchanges. So we're excited to hear what people have to say. Head on over to our website and give it a shot and send us your feedback. To get your hands on one of the most powerful yet user-friendly crypto apps out there, stop by edge.app today. Thanks a whole lot, Paul. Thanks much, Adam. So in the last segment, we spent some time talking about the fundamentals of hyperinflation of reserve currencies. We got a little bit into the history of how some of that's gone. We talked about how it doesn't necessarily have to be governments at all inflating or hyperinflating in order to get that result, as we saw from kind of the gold situation in the Spanish empire. I want to pivot the conversation now to talk about the new world of cryptocurrency. And I think that there's really two angles to take this conversation from. On the one hand, I think that there's the conversation about Bitcoin and other decentralized, distributed, you know, neutral cryptocurrencies. And then I think on the other hand, there's the conversation about the sort of corporate coins that we've seen now come out with the first one being the Facebook coin Libra that all seem to kind of have characteristics about them, which at scale could actually serve the purpose of reserve currencies, if not better than at least as well as and without a lot of the kind of neutrality problems that it seems like we've seen over the entire history of currencies and reserve currencies so far. I've used this expression in the past, which is in the past, sovereignty created currency. Now, currency creates sovereignty. And this is the idea that the control over creation of currency in itself produces sovereignty. And if you can create a neutral currency, you can create a kind of neutral private sovereignty as a result of that. Well, if you take that to the next extreme, in the past, historically, empire created reserve currency. And now a de facto reserve currency can create empires. So it's the other way around. De facto reserve currencies could be things like cryptocurrencies, which create a kind of virtual empire of the consensus rule. And similarly, the scary scenario there would be a de facto reserve currency created by private corporations, such as Facebook's Libra, turns Facebook itself into a virtual empire. I don't know if it's better or worse that when we're talking about, you know, this in the context of Libra and Facebook, we're really talking about a cabal, <laughs> uh, you know, a group of, I think that's going to be 25 corporations to start with the intent to get to 100. You know, what I mean, like, I guess I like that better than a singular government controlling, you know, everything. And again, with the sort of military stuff that goes along with that. Well, you haven't considered acquisitions, which can very quickly turn that group of 25 into one company that owns 75 different brands that pretend to be different. Well, I mean, and even if they don't own all those brands, maybe they're just all of their incentives still point them in the same directions. It seems like the power to control the protocol, whether you're talking about a fiat protocol or a cryptocurrency protocol, that's the real danger inherent in all of this. Yeah, incentives are destiny. 
as Facebook coin gets its billions and billions of assets under management, I think in my mind, the day it becomes an empire is the first time it has a couple hundred million in a small nation's debt that the nation defaults on because the previous administration didn't care about actually paying the debt. And then the Facebook coin says, oh, don't worry about it. Why don't we convert the debt into uh, your major port? We'll just collateralize your major port and give that over to Facebook coin. And then that's the point where they've become a a nation and an empire. (laughs) That's how the game is played. You know, we talked about it a couple episodes ago when we were talking about Libra. That really does seem like it's the kind of new IMF scenario, right? Where it's like a supranational organization, but they have so much power by nature of the currency and by nature of the money that they make off the currency that they can express this largesse and effectively define terms, too. That's the other thing about it is basically they get to tell the country what to do because the country owes them money. Well, I mean, it shouldn't be surprising because the IMF is a private company in every way in terms of its accountability, even though effectively it's controlled by the U.S. in large part. Andreas, I think you're doing it a disservice. I think the best way to describe it is that it's a private company with socialized losses. So it's sort of like a mixture between a government entity and a private company. If only there were a word used to describe such type of organization. Yeah, exactly. Uh, what is the word? Starts with an S, ends with an ism. I don't know. Sort of an overused word these days. Fascism, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's it. So let's use a rule of thumb. How can you tell if it's a government or a corporation? And this is really tricky because nowadays, in many cases, you can't tell, right? I think the real answer is quite simple. Can you vote? And can your vote actually change the leadership and apply meaningful changes in the operation or governance model? And based on that, the IMF is clearly not a government because it doesn't have any voters unless its voters are other governments. And you certainly can't change its governance with your vote. So, yeah, it's private. Similarly, Facebook, right? So what's the difference between Facebook and the IMF? Well, the only difference right now is one has power over countries and the other one doesn't have power over countries yet. So if something like Libra really represents kind of a new form of the IMF in a successful type of scenario, is that better or worse than the current status quo that we have right now with you know a US dollar centric world? It seems like the incentives might actually be better in that circumstance, even if it does have some kind of scary, you know, dystopian elements to it. No, the incentives are not better. It's much, much worse. You're talking about an entity that has private information on much more than the citizens of any one country is not subject to any oversight or governance outside of its board of directors and has much slicker marketing. It's also you know, to play devil's advocate here, at the very least, when it comes to national currencies, they're doing what's in the best interest, or at least for the supremacy of their nation and their tribe. With a supranational, non-jurisdictional corporate entity, they're not looking out for anyone, right? So like the difference between 20 things looking out for the interests of 5% of their own little collectives versus entities that aren't even playing that game is sort of a a hyper-minimization of uh, interests that they're even caring about supporting the benefit of. Do you guys think people are more skeptical of Facebook or the government, like Americans? Definitely Facebook. Yeah, I agree with that too. It's really amazing to me. People are critical of 
Silicon Valley tech companies, but have a giant blind spot for the most trusted institution in American politics, which is the U.S. military. It even blows my mind when it's libertarians who have the highest degree of respect for the police and the military, and they even go to the extreme of sporting one of those stickers that say, Malon Lave, come and take my guns. And then right below it, they have one of those thin blue line flags. And it's like, who do you think is going to come and take your guns, idiot? The most dangerous thing about Libra, of course, is that they have really, really slick marketing. I mean, you know, the original U.S. promise of the land of the free resounded for 200 years, but it's still a fairly cumbersome slogan, the land of the free. But Libra is a way to express that concept of freedom in a much catchier, you know, five letter word. And it's so much nicer than if you called it empire or slave or something like that. So, you know, you've got to hand it to them. They really know how to do marketing and that makes them far more dangerous. The other thing is that Libra keeps saying, you know, lean into us, trust us, because in five years, which is long enough for the people doing this job to have moved on to the next thing and then the new guy not being obligated to it, we may be decentralized in a way that would actually resolve these questions or concerns you have about us. But that would be fully within a timeline we control and a horizon we can't describe in a way that we can't really tell you how do we do it with an implementation that we can't tell you how it would get done. But give us all the trust as if this thing in five years may happen on the assumption that it would. We'll be decentralized five years from now. You know, trusting Libra to become a decentralized cryptocurrency five years from now is believing that, you know, Ethereum's ever going to do Casper. Uh, so, you know, the uh, concern seems to be pretty widespread, actually, about Libra. You know, Bank of England, Federal Reserve, India, China. I mean, just everybody's come out. And basically, they've all said that they're concerned about Libra unless it is firmly under the regulatory grasp of all of these different, effectively, regional central banks. What great marketing for Bitcoin. I mean, really, couldn't it have been better? <laughs> I totally agree. Like that's the most interesting part about this is that Libra ultimately winds up being a company that does all of this stuff. And it's a company that has to be compliant. And it'll be interesting to see if they don't go that direction. If not, perhaps they'll be more like a cryptocurrency, if not in the decentralization way, than at least in the sort of thumbing their nose <laughs> at the structure sort of way. But it definitely seems like there's meaningful concern about this. And it's been taking up a lot of air, uh, you know, at least in U.S. politics for the last couple of months since it was announced. It seems like that concern, it's true for Libra. And the thing that I think that's probably the scariest thing to me about Libra as far as its chances for success are just how much it solves a bunch of problems. It simplifies a bunch of problems in terms of how people use cryptocurrency by not actually creating real cryptocurrency, right? And then it sets up a structure where if they achieve any sort of meaningful penetration into the use case of a reserve currency, either regional or globally, then the amounts of money that the investors into this project make, which of course requires a $10 million minimum investment, you have to be invited, you have to be a certain type of company in order to participate. But like the, the money that that yields is billions and billions of dollars. You know, and it's like a perpetual yearly money flow type of thing based on the way that they've got this set up. The incentives for this are actually very simple from that perspective. It's Libra investors want Libra to be adopted as a global currency used and held by as many people as possible because they make stupid amounts of money from that. Yeah. And governments want to make sure that that never happens. I really like the idea where you said that maybe they're going to 
instead of becoming regulated and fitting in with all of these rules, maybe they're going to thumb their nose at the system. Um, they're not. And the reason they're not is because corporations are not people and therefore they have neither thumbs nor noses. But more seriously, because at the end of the day, it doesn't serve this end goal that you're talking about, which is getting this into the hands of as many people as possible. It doesn't serve that goal to thumb their nose at anything. It actually serves their goal to succumb to all of the regulations, play as nice as possible with as many governments as possible. And if they only get a billion or so people to join this in a regulated way, they'll become 10 times bigger than PayPal. And they still make a trillion dollars on this. So it's not a bad deal. All they have to do is shed all principles, which they're pretty good at. So the alternative angle to this is the Bitcoin angle. And certainly there are other cryptocurrencies where it's possible that it could fill the role. But again, based on conversations we've been having and based on momentum in the market, it really does seem like Bitcoin is the obvious choice for that if we do wind up going that direction. You know, nobody's going to enforce Bitcoin as the global reserve currency. It's the sort of thing that if it happens, is going to happen because people see it as the best choice forward. Let's talk about the differences in terms of that use case between Bitcoin and something like Libra. You know, you're talking about Libra is going to submit itself and accept all of the constraints that are put on it. What does that actually do to the use case that they're trying to fulfill? I mean, if their use case is to make themselves as rich as possible, it doesn't do anything. It's still very, very successful. From that perspective, they're very successful no matter what they do because they have the user base. That's what it's all about. They have the base for the economic activity. But I question the idea that the end goal for Bitcoin or success for Bitcoin should be judged as whether it becomes a reserve currency that's held by governments to settle each other's debts or globally adopted in that way. I don't think that's going to happen. Maybe it happens in a very, very, very long timeline. But I also question whether that's something desirable, because if you end up with a bunch of governments holding excessive amounts of Bitcoin, that gives them power in the system as part of consensus with their economic activity that outpaces that of individuals. And that's not a good outcome. I would much rather Bitcoin be the choice hodl currency of the underrepresented and powerless around the world who use it as an opt-out strategy from the corrupt governments than that it becomes like a new way for governments to have a neutral store value in which they can stash their reserves. That doesn't appeal to me as an application because once again, it puts the power in governments. In order to do that, they'd have to dump enormous amounts of fiat into Bitcoin, which, you know, would end up enticing a lot of Bitcoin holders to sell their good crypto for shitty fiat. Based on that, though, it sounds like Libra has some kind of inherent advantages versus the type of thing that we're trying to do with Bitcoin. But at the same time, like, let's take a situation like Cyprus from, uh, you know, five years ago when we were kind of just getting started. You know, they had the banking system get locked down and really nobody had Bitcoin. So there was a little bit of activity there, but there was more excitement than there was actual activity. Would Libra have helped in that situation or would the controls put on it by the local governments and the compliance requirements basically have meant that it would have been locked up just like the rest of the banking system for those people? It very much depends on whether people had access to Libra before the crisis or not. If people had access to Libra before the crisis and they had some Libra holdings, then 
before the government has a chance to take action, they move a lot of their wealth into something like Libra and escape currency controls. Then they shut down Libra in that country. It's basically exactly the same thing you see with controls over the internet in Turkey, et cetera, et cetera. You know, we got to see the first stages of the coup broadcast on TV out of Turkey before they shut down all of the internet and suppressed speech and jailed all of the journalists. But you don't get to see the end stages. So the same thing with Libra. If they ban it before, preemptively, because they know they want to manipulate currency as India has done, then Libra doesn't help anyone. If they let it in, then they are not able later to easily kick it out or to stop people from using it as an escape hatch, which is exactly why they're not going to let it in. Any government that has any inkling that it might need to manipulate currency of the next decade is not going to allow Libra into its country. But I also think this escape hatch narrative outside of a decentralized system that is like Bitcoin has been a long running farce. And I call it that because it's sort of like socialism, where it's this concept that manifests everywhere except reality. And when you look at PayPal, there's actually a phenomenal book called PayPal Wars, which is the history of the founding of PayPal and the first sort of online payment processor. In it, there's about two paragraphs of Peter Thiel talking about his vision for PayPal. And he almost word for word describes Bitcoin. And he explicitly says, I want there to be this method for any person in the world to buy in and out of any currency in the world that they want. And we can end currency controls and the destruction of of citizens' wealth because they can dynamically get into and out of their national currencies and the this and the that. And you hear it and it sounds perfectly like a description of Bitcoin. And it's almost everything you just said that Libra could be. And then the reality is because PayPal is a company, the second they want to sell to a market, the first thing they give up is any control that could lead to currency escaping. I'm going to argue against that just a tiny bit. Yes, this is exactly what Libra did with the white paper in that all of this idealism will actually get diluted into nothingness as it becomes more profitable. But at the same time, PayPal has had an impact on government currency controls. It does put governments in a very difficult place because PayPal funds a bunch of foreign reserve currency coming into countries from people who are selling services overseas. So if they cut it off completely, they lose a big source of hard currency coming into the country, much more than they lose hard currency leaving the country later on when they're trying to apply currency control. So this it's this double-edged sword, which means that Libra will also have that effect. And as a result, it's very difficult to reconcile those two visions. But as you said, the initial glorious ideological vision gets defanged at every shareholder meeting and director's meeting until what's left is, listen, um, I think it might be better if we just try to change the system from within. (laughs) The cop-out phrase of every sold-out idealist. So Bitcoin obviously doesn't have those problems because there is no Bitcoin company. There is no centralized point of control for Bitcoin. You know, again, like there's been concerns perhaps about attempts to, you know, go after developers or things like that. But it feels like at least in the current status quo, that isn't really a strong concern. Only because it wouldn't be effective. If it would be effective, they would have already done it. And they've already done the things that they think are effective, like onerous capital gains accounting procedures and 
negative propaganda and keeping it in the gray and making it difficult to do on-ramps and off-ramps. If they thought that going after developers would be effective, they'd do it. If they thought that going after miners would be effective, they'd do it. But they know, at least the more sophisticated people within the various agencies that might try to do this, know that this will not be effective. It will simply push some of the middle class above the board, legitimate activities out of the way and move the rest into the shadows where it will continue just as strong as before. I'm looking at this scenario and I hear us saying that it's the sort of thing that is going to naturally emerge, but I'm really wanting to come up with scenarios or or potential paths forward that could actually see us go from where we are today to cryptocurrency, you know, Bitcoin or something else, but something fully decentralized as the perhaps not official global reserve currency, but as we said, the implicit one that's just kind of like the obvious best choice and has enough network effect around it that it's useful for that purpose and doesn't have the problems of centralized services like Libra will. If possible. I tend to think that when it comes to network effects and technology, you don't win territory, you win new worlds. So like the whole story, you know, Linux is going to take over the world. Linux is going to be the next personal computer. Linux has done many, many things. The one thing it has never done is take over the personal computer. It won the server space. And then as soon as this new field called personal handheld computers came out, it won that field, an entirely new world that was there for the taking. And I think that as we look towards global community and cross-national companies and startups. I mean, you look at, you know, it's also manifested most strongly in cryptocurrency startups. You'll have 10 people in the company across five different countries. And I think that the more that our global community moves towards internet, not only commerce, but companies founded globally, cross-jurisdictionally with these like supranational small organizations that the way that they will choose to engage in finance and do banking will be with cryptocurrency. And it's sort of in that nascent world with no interest that cryptocurrency is winning and will continue to win. And the traditional modern banking will retain its notional value and will never go down and will go up a little bit. But as a percentage basis, as the world grows more into that type of commerce, it's going to be 90% cryptocurrency that eats it out in the same way that when we move to mobile, it's all Linux. Yeah, it's exactly the same as you're not going to replace the fax machines, the TVs, the movie studios, the newspapers, or the Macy's and department stores. Instead, you build an entirely new economy that doesn't need movies, TV studios, newspapers, fax machines, or physical shopping, and that economy eventually becomes bigger. In the case of cryptocurrencies, Adam had it in the original question. It's not going to be the official currency is going to be the de facto market reserve currency. And the reason for that is because the very concept of an official cryptocurrency with the word official representing authority, declaration, agreement, committee, rather than recognition as simply more efficient, harder currency by the markets, that in itself dies. That in itself is what was killed by the emergence of neutral global cryptocurrencies. The idea that you could anoint something as official and the market status would follow, it doesn't follow anymore. Market status is the only thing that matters and the official declaration will continue to exist. It will just be irrelevant. Just to kind of put a cap on this, 
you know, I've been trying to figure out what's the functional differences, right? I know that there are technical differences. What are the functional differences between Libra and something like Bitcoin for this use case? And I really think that what we're seeing here is something we've seen a lot of other places too, which is the difference between optimization and innovation. I think that Libra with the advantages that it has, but also with the challenges that it has really represents what looks like substantial optimization of the existing approach to doing these types of monies, but using a lot of the advantages and a lot of the technologies that have been explored or introduced by cryptocurrency. But ultimately, you still have those central points of control. Even if there's 100 people, you know, 100 different companies who are all voting on those, ultimately, those companies, as Jonathan said in the prior segment on this, you know, have a very similar fact pattern. And what would incite one to do something is probably also going to incite the other. So there is that centralized point of control. Whereas with Bitcoin, I mean, like there's centralized points of development, if you want to call it that. There are other centralized elements to it. But from a network status standpoint and from a network operation standpoint, the decentralization is so much more implicit that you might wind up with either one of these succeeding. But one of them really does represent just like a better version of the current system because it still has people in control, whereas the decentralized Bitcoin approach has ultimately nobody in control, which is arguably one of its primary advantages. Uh, As you probably know, I'm one of the directors of the Cryptocurrency Certification Consortium, the uh, non-profit organization that's education-focused and does the Certified Bitcoin Professional uh, Certification, as well as the Cryptocurrency Security Standard. Um, So we're holding a second conference. The first one was in 2016 in Toronto. And the second conference is going to be this uh, upcoming August 28th through the 30th in Denver, Colorado. And it's the Blockchain Training Conference 2019, BTC 2019, or blockchaintraining.org. And this is a really special one. I mean, I've worked really hard with the rest of the directors of the board of C4 to put together an educational program, zero shilling, all teachers who are teaching specific topics with uh, useful skills that you uh, will actually learn something. And we're delivering at least 16 hours of focused education by some of the best teachers in the space. And I'm so proud of the lineup. The schedule is amazing. You can actually walk away with a certification, can't you? You can walk away with uh, a certified Bitcoin professional certification. So we have an exam room on site where you can take that. We're also running the first workshop for cryptocurrency security standard auditors who will audit companies to certify them as tier one, tier two, or tier three CCSS compliant. Um, Although the exam for that will happen after the event. uh, So it won't be on site, but uh, yeah, there's, there's, an amazing opportunity here to not just gain the skills, but also prove that you have those skills. Because, you know, a lot of people say they're Bitcoin experts, but very few have the credentials to prove that. One thing I really liked about this was that there's actually an article on the website about how to pitch your employer to sponsor your trip. You could get an education on this very specialized topic where there's not that much good, trustworthy education available on it. And you could even get your employer to pay for it potentially. Yeah. And it's not just Bitcoin. The conference is about open blockchains in general. It has quite a lot of content about Bitcoin, but it also has uh, content about the Lightning Network. We have a great lineup of teachers on the Lightning Network, as well as quite a lot of content on Ethereum, smart contracts programming, uh, security, 
as well as uh, professional training for lawyers and accountants and tax professionals in this space. So it's a very well-rounded program. And, you know, there isn't a conference like this. I mean, I've never seen a conference in our space that's just education. The five directors are uh, myself, uh, Vitalik Patern, Michael Perklin, Joshua McDougall, and Pamela Morgan. We've got four of the five directors speaking at the conference in their area of expertise. Uh, we also have a couple of members of LTB speaking at the conference. I'm going to be talking about crypto for creatives. And what that means is that if you're not a Bitcoin professional or open blockchain professional, but you're some type of entrepreneur who has your own business, how can you actually integrate cryptocurrency into any type of small business? It's going to be very interactive. There's going to be actual brainstorming sessions about what you can walk away from the conference with that are action items that you can do right then and there. I'm going to be teaching a class on uh, basically going from zero to wonk as far as understanding different types of tokens, different ways that people use tokens. There's kind of this, this gigantic area that's covered by the term token in today's modern cryptocurrency world. And then beyond that, at the conference, during the actual event itself, we'll be doing um, a live recording of the Let's Talk Bitcoin show. And then in addition to that, I'm intending to do a number of kind of man-on-the-street interviews um, with attendees so that we can kind of get an idea of what type of person is going to these types of events and really is, is interested in learning about this technology now because it's been a long time since we've kind of checked in with that side of things. Yes, and for those of you who have been in Bitcoin and the Bitcoin community for a very long time, you know that Nick Zabo has gone to more professional events than Adam B. <laughs> so this is a very rare moment <laughs> to, to meet Adam. I like my hermitage. Well, it's a rare opportunity to see all of us together as well, because the last time this happened was last year. Yeah, the, the live shows on stage are a lot of fun. We're doing it on uh, August 29th at 7.30 p.m. Um, and we're going to be recording a full uh, show. And we're going to do that on stage uh, with a bit of audience participation. Yeah, I forgot to mention, I'm teaching three hours of content myself. Uh, apart from the opening keynotes, I'm also going to be uh, teaching the CBP prep course, which is the preparation for the Certified Bitcoin Professional exam. So it's Bitcoin fundamentals, um, mirroring all of the important concepts you need to learn about Bitcoin. Uh, a lot of the stuff that I cover in Mastering Bitcoin, I'm going to be teaching that for three hours uh, during the three days of the conference. And just to get a better understanding, that the ideal person for that is someone who just wants to understand they have the breadth of understanding of crypto or who feels like I want to get into this field and I want to know that I have sufficient knowledge to be able to perform in the role that I want that happens to be a crypto organization. Is that sort of the correct? Yeah, well, we have three tracks over three days. Um, the three tracks are basics, which are for people who are brand new to this. So you can learn all of the basics and fundamental concepts and get started from zero. There's professionals, which is for lawyers, accountants, consultants, tax accountants, family offices, CPAs, etc. And there is a developer track, uh, which is uh, much more technical for developers. You know, example of that, we're going to be doing Solidity Security uh, programming. We're going to be doing the fundamentals of the Bolt protocol for Lightning um, and, and many very, very heavy courses for uh, developers. So uh, it's, it's well-balanced. There's stuff for the non-technical, the professional, and the technical person. 
And there's a, currently a promotion going on, so I believe the next 100 ticket purchases also get a keep key. So the event is in Denver, Colorado. The dates are the 28th through the 30th of August, 2019. And uh, you can learn more information and sign up at blockchaintraining.org. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. If you'd like to be the first to hear new episodes of the show, visit ltbshow.com and subscribe to our new LTB Show only podcast feed for free. Typically, we're releasing episodes on Saturdays there instead of Sunday. Today's show is sponsored by edge.app and blockchaintraining.org. Content for today's show was provided by Andreas Antonopoulos, Stephanie Murphy, Jonathan Mohan, and Adam B. Levine. This episode featured music by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz, with editing by Stephen Aram. Any questions or comments? Email adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. We'll see you next time.